Money facilitates a system, the economy, that is too complex, too unpredictable, and too uncertain to be modeled or reduced to neat quantifiable units. Expanding humanity's productive resources, or capital, requires the acceptance of complexity, uncertainty, unknowns, and risk. It's not a neat or tame process. It's a wild one. It's a gang of risk-takers spelunking the caverns of the unknown with nothing except their intuitions about future preferences and knowledge of current problems to guide their descent into the uncertain and the unknowable. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And we have got a fantastic one. This is a long one, and it will have to it will have to be done in two parts. There's just no way I'm going to get it all done today. So I'll try to find it. I'll try to get it all the way to the halfway mark. Um, but this is from the Swan Bitcoin blog. This is another one from Stephen Lubka, and I'll have his first piece that we read by him. Uh, on the show, in the show notes, uh, with a link so that you can go check that out. And that one is the true, or Bitcoin and the true meaning of inflation. That was, uh, what was that? Read 643. Um, and it's also, it also does a really good job of explaining why Bitcoin is going to respond to the money printing, not the CPI. That it's it's directly correlating, or or it's its relative valuation and its major moves are when the money floods into the economy, whereas CPI, the actual consumer price inflation, is something that's a way, way lagging indicator. So just like asset prices and stocks are falling um, during this, you know, the higher order uh, production goods and assets and commodities are falling now, whereas the actual consumer prices are inflating. It's because of the it's because of when the money was actually created, and so many people misunderstand because of the consumer price inflation being the 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 price inflation rather than the monetary inflation being the focus. It's easy for people to be like, "Oh, well, Bitcoin's not an inflation hedge." So if you're ever curious about that argument and never understood why um, or what that meant, Stephen does a great job in uh, uh, 643 read 643 in breaking that down. But today, he has a phenomenal piece on misallocation of resources. And you are not going to want to miss this one. Uh, it's, it's really good and it's super, super dense. I, I love so much of what he covers in this piece. So we will be jumping into it in just a moment. Really quick, I just want to thank our sponsors and we will jump right in. Thank you to The Cold Card, to CoinKite for supporting the show, but to The Cold Card for keeping my Bitcoin safe. And for NFC, because tapping my cold card on my phone is just a really special experience. Especially when you're talking about multisig and the ability, the, the ability to get additional keys and security on a mobile device, but still have the versatility of having the mobile with you all the time. Man, that's a sweet spot. And you guys can get 5% off with code Bitcoin Audible by going to guyswan.com slash cold card right there in the show notes. And then Swan Bitcoin for making so many great blog posts to read on the show, uh, as well as 
their Swan Bitcoin savings account, that, I, the, my plan that I buy weekly, and for the Pacific Bitcoin Conference, which is going to be absolutely lit, and I'm super stoked about it, and you can still get 20% off your tickets with code GUYS. That is also in the bow notes, right there in the description of the show. And then whenever you're having to spend fiat to get to all of these places, you're going to want to use your full debit card because you get sats back for having to use poverty paper. I tell you, as someone who had to pay the government today, it's, it, it does soften the blow to get sats back. So get sats back on everything in your life with the fold card. Guess where you're going to find the details and discounts on that one? That's right, in the flow codes. So go there. Check it out. And right now, we're getting into today's read. And it's titled, Capital Misallocation, Bitcoin Fixes This, by Stephen Lubka. Fix the money, fix the world. The Importance of Capital Capital is how civilization happens. The development of capital arduous and risky work is the source of all societal progress. What is capital? It is the productive resources of humanity. However, it's also a process which emerges from the intersection of money and physical resources. Developing, maintaining, and growing capital is not guaranteed. It can easily go awry and money can both support or distort our ability to form and grow more capital. The entire point of money and finance is to facilitate the tangible, real growth of capital. Finance has no independent virtue apart from this. You can think of finance as an entity attached to the flesh of the real economy. Is it a symbiotic organism, or is it a horrible parasite? In its best and most noble functions, Finance and money accomplish an all-inspiring increase in the growth of capital via a level of efficiency which would be impossible otherwise. However, in its worst form, finance turns into a blood-sucking parasite, siphoning wealth out of the system while convincing its host that it is actually wealthier than before. I'm sure an intelligent reader like yourself can guess which version we are currently dealing with. Misallocation of Capital Capital misallocation is one of the most fearsome challenges that an economy and its people can face. It is one of the major ways a broken system of money and finance can distort the real economy. To understand how this happens, we will first discuss how the economy functions as an emergent machine that produces spontaneous order, and we will then discuss how money is a carrier of the condensed information that is necessary for the spontaneous order to arise. But most of all, we will discuss how the process of capital formation can be impaired, impeded, and otherwise disrupted by privileged insiders capable of manipulating the natural market forces governing money. In other words, when money is made artificially cheap, whether via low interest rates or monetary expansion, it fundamentally impairs the formation of capital. Fools throughout history, for we have tried this before, figured that perhaps if we made money abundant, we could stimulate growth. This has failed whenever we have tried it. Our illustrious central planners have been trying the cheap money approach 
for the last decade and more. It always fails the same way. Speculation, asset inflation, wealth inequality, the slowdown of actual productive growth, and the destruction and consumption of precious capital. Ludicrous nonsense starts to happen. In the 1800s, exporters started shipping ice skates to the equator because of artificially low interest rates. If you don't get the joke, think about how much ice there is at the equator. Today, we have the Bored Ape Yacht Club. And yes, finally, we are going to talk about how Bitcoin actually fixes this. Defining Capital Capital is the productive assets of civilization. It is everything we possess, know, or even are that is capable of producing a return. Let's define a return as we get more out of the process than we put in. This can be either through the creation of more complex finished product, it could be quite literally an EROI, energy return on investment, or it could be via the prevention of sufficiently costly adverse effects, hurricane shutters preventing windows from breaking. When we use a tractor and fertilizer to grow a field of wheat, the total amount of human energy involved in that process is less than the total amount of energy contained in all of the wheat. We have yielded a return. Hallelujah. So capital is everything that allows us to create more than what we already have. Let's be perfectly clear, this isn't just fuel, machines, and factories. It is also knowledge, skilled workers, new inventions, cities, infrastructure, education, and much more. The list goes on and on. Money is a reflection, a mirror twin of capital itself, and it is a critical part of the emergent process via which, quote, capital happens. Money contains the potential to direct economic outcomes and produce returns. It is a literal claim to society's time and resources. It is the symbolic coordinator of capital, as well as an instrument that stores its unredeemed and future capacity for utilization. There is an important caveat to mention, and it is this. Creating more money is not creating capital. It doesn't matter how hard politicians wish this were true. Money and the physical resources which form capital are like two sides of the same coin, which is itself the process of capital. Money denominates, stores the value, organizes, and coordinates capital. Together, money plus the physical productive resources form the totality of the property of our economy, which is the process of capital. It's important to think of capital broadly in this manner. The bottom line is, we want more capital. Money, price, and spontaneous order. The beauty of markets is the spontaneous order they create, the order that emerges in the absence of formal design and communication. While markets can exist in the absence of money, the extent to which an appropriate money facilitates emergent order is astonishing and truly awe-inspiring when you contemplate it. This speaks to the practical reality of humanity's social constructs. 
Yes, we create the concept of money and imbue it with reality. However, it results in a staggering growth in tangible, real-world physical abundance. And not all forms and qualities of the money construct are equal in their ability to produce this outcome. Just because something is socially constructed doesn't mean it doesn't have a pivotal real-world role, and one which can be better or worse depending on the qualities you imbue it with. The quote, everything is a social construct so it doesn't matter what we do with it, people are down bad. Money plays a critical role in the emergence of spontaneous order, mainly through the reduction of unnecessary information. In their book, Bitcoin is Venice, Farrington and Myers discuss how contrary to the common belief that price, quote, contains the sum of information that went into calculating it, price actually renders down the fat of copious information into a refined, seed oil-free, ghee of just what's necessary. Price discards and destroys everything which is unnecessary from itself. Let's use the example of a banana to illustrate this concept. When you see that a store is selling a banana for 50 cents, what information can you reconstruct from that price? Do you know how much rainfall the farm it was grown on and competing ones received? What about the humidity? The proliferation of mold species? The price of labor at the factory that manufactured the refrigerated trucks which transported the bananas? Can you calculate what percentage of the farm's balance sheet was YOLO'd into GameStop calls? No, none of that information can be reconstructed from the price of a banana, even though that information was relevant to the final price. Even a hyper-intelligent AI, something we are many decades away from, I know this because I asked an AI, would not be able to deduce these factors based solely on the price of one banana. Yes, rainfall impacted the price, and so did labor costs, and maybe even humidity too. I'm no banana expert. But the final price of the banana discards that information, prioritizing instead what market price participants were willing to settle transactions at. The final price at which transactions were settled matters. It gives market participants everything they need and nothing they don't need. Price provides a single, elegant point of information that synthesizes everything to a single piece of data, which is easily usable, while eliminating the need for every market participant to understand anything about banana production. Price is a lot like the public key used in cryptography, and indeed in Bitcoin, to create addresses. It's a one-way function. A private key is used to generate an address, but an address cannot be used to generate a private key. Information is used to generate a price, but a price cannot be used to generate the specific information that was its input. Money and the Formation of Capital Money facilitates a system, the economy, that is too complex too unpredictable and too uncertain to be modeled or reduced to neat quantifiable units. Expanding humanity's productive resources, capital, requires the acceptance of complexity, uncertainty, unknowns, and risk. 
It is not a neat or tame process. It's a wild one. It's a gang of risk-takers spelunking the caverns of the unknown with nothing except their intuitions about future preferences and knowledge of current problems to guide their descent into the uncertainty and the unknowable. It's common that people think society has disintermediated the inherent wildness and unpredictability from the natural world. Nothing could be further from the truth. We have produced unimaginable order, yet the base conditions of all existence is uncertainty, incomplete information, risk, and a healthy dose of that which is fundamentally unknowable. This exists at both the individual and collective level. A given individual in any economic system lacks access to all of the information that all other participants have, but the entire system and the sum of all participants also deal with countless fundamental unknowns and uncertainties. That's where money comes in. In this sense, money is a magical coordination tool in a system where no one can formally understand the system in its totality. Money and price enables an utterly astonishing level of coordination across multiple chasms of uncertainty and unknowability. The price of goods and the time value of money, interest, work together to coordinate vast quantities of capital and legions of people across vast durations of time. But since money is so magical and so spontaneous, read organic, emergent, and naturally set, the qualities of a given money can radically alter its ability to function as a vessel of information, coordination, and as an organizer of complexity out of uncertainty. Unfortunately, the qualities of money can be changed in such a way that interrupts and interferes with this process of spontaneous order. Distortion of the natural functioning of money, interest, and price is how capital formation is impeded and how widespread capital misallocation emerges. Capital misallocation driven by monetary distortion means that money is channeled to endeavors, investments, and assets which it would otherwise not be allocated to. Due to artificial pressures on price or availability of money, or political pressures, market participants start to take actions they would not otherwise take due to these altered monetary conditions. These endeavors, investments, and assets will be less productive and less sustainable in most instances since they are driven by such things as a race to avoid inflation, a lack of ability to earn meaningful yields, or a cheapness of credit that makes buying assets on credit the logical choice. Capital misallocation, for example, occurs when I can borrow at 0%, so I can buy up 100 houses on credit because, well, why not? At a higher interest rate, capital allocators would be forced to contend with all of the risk inherent in this decision. But at 0%, artificial interest rates drive financial engineering and excessive speculation. Why wouldn't you borrow a depreciating currency for free to buy up scarcer assets that almost always go up in value? This is especially problematic because this level of credit is easily extended to the wealthy and well-connected, but not to the average hard-working person. Another way of putting this is capital misallocation is when I can borrow money so cheaply 
that I invested in Adam Newman's next company after WeWork. Capital misallocation driven by monetary distortion can take various forms, such as funding speculative ventures, forced investment to escape inflation, converting reliable assets, such as homes, into stores of value, and the increasing concentration of capital into the hands of large companies and away from vigorous new participants. All of this misallocation comes at the expense of the hard work of vetting and building productive ventures. There are two main ways, excluding overt political forced investment, by which alterations in the natural behavior of money lead to capital misallocation, artificially manipulated interest rates, and exogenous monetary expansion. Interest rates. Quote, Interest is the rent of stock or capital and is the same as the rent of land. The first is the rent of the wrought or artificial stock, the latter of the unwrought or natural stock. Nicholas Barbon, Late 17th Century What Barbon is saying is that there are two ways we interact with capital, money and physical resources. Barbon cites land as the prime example of the rent of a physical resource, but today we would include factories, vehicles, and even potentially labor resources in this category. It is self-evident that someone would charge interest to rent their factory. However, the exact same logic applies to loaning money. Money is the right to capital. It is unredeemed work. It is the ability to account for the opportunity cost of utilizing society's physical resources. With money, you can rent a factory, a car, and pay for people's labor and time. It is obvious that those things are both scarce and valuable, and that therefore you should not have unlimited free access to them. It is money which both constrains and also provides access to these resources. Money, as a right to dictate what is done with capital for a period of time, must require an interest rate to borrow it, by the same reasoning that one must pay to borrow physical capital. But what happens when the interest rate is artificially suppressed? Does a 0% interest rate make any sense? What about a negative interest rate? Would you ever pay me to borrow your car, barring extraordinary circumstances? That is what a negative interest rate is. Let me make a critical distinction here. If a market naturally arrived at an interest rate of 1% because capital was simply so abundant and society was filled with savant entrepreneurs, that would be a good thing and fine. I question the likelihood of this outcome, but if it solely occurred as a function of the availability of capital and entrepreneurship, there would be nothing to object to. However, if interest rates are artificially lowered, we run the risk of fundamentally distorting the pricing of capital and altering the behaviors of savers and investors. If we view money and physical resources as the twin sides of capital, it becomes immediately apparent that distorting the market's ability to naturally set interest rates interferes with and distorts the ever-uncertain, crucial process of capital formation. Capital is not simply formed as if by magic when a bank lends money. Our esteemed central planners only dream that it might be so. Capital is only formed via the messy, unpredictable, uncertain, and risk-filled process of entrepreneurship.
It is formed by risk-taking, by speculation on what the future might look like and what future humans might desire. It is formed by the act of creation, the act of preservation, and even the act of destruction. New structures and formations of resources must be built. They must then be sustained by producing consistent profits, and old, inefficient structures may even need to be disrupted or destroyed. The fact that this lines up with the Hindu trinity Trimurti of Brahma, the creator, Vishnu, the preserver, and Shiva, the destroyer, is surely something I will spare you any further discussion of for now. Capital formation is challenging. It takes place in reality, not in abstract models and theorizing, and relies on the intimate interactions of risk-taking entrepreneurs with the spontaneous manifest order of markets. When we disrupt the proper functioning of money by distorting interest rates, the time value of money, we can fundamentally impair, distort, and even corrupt the noble endeavor of civilizational advancement via capital formation. One way to think of this. Imagine a world where, due to the realities of capital, talent, and borrowers, the interest rate is 5% to borrow money. This interest rate is not an arbitrary thing. It reflects the very real realities of the market. Now imagine a given borrower wants to build a new factory. But at an interest rate of 5%, the realities of the market make his endeavor impossible. The numbers simply don't work. Luckily for our aspiring entrepreneur, the hegemon smiles on his fortune and forces banks to lend at a maximum rate of 1% interest. Suddenly, he can build his factory. By lowering the cost of borrowing money, we simulate a world where capital is more abundant. However, capital is not more abundant than it was. Capital still possesses the same constraints that caused the interest rate to naturally gravitate towards 5%. Yet we have given our entrepreneur the signal that this is not the case. In this way, a project is started which would not have happened without the interest rate intervention. The artificial modification of interest rates changes what is produced. And maybe this even works out for this individual factory, but looking across the entire system, it is bound to result in projects which could have afforded 5% interest suddenly being unable to acquire the capital they need to finish because countless other endeavors consumed the capital they would have used. The artificially lowered interest rate transferred capital from prudent endeavors to ones who, like so many weeds, only spring up due to a low interest rate. The market requires an accurate price of capital to produce spontaneous order. Robbed of an accurate price of capital, it misallocates it. Bastiat's debate with Proudhon is yet another perennial example of one more way that low interest rates drive capital misallocation. Quote, In your system, the rich will indeed borrow gratis, while the poor will not be able to borrow at any price. When a rich man presents himself at the bank, he will be told, You are solvent. Here is the capital. We lend it to you for nothing. But let a worker dare to show his face. He will be asked, where are your guarantees, your lands, your houses, your goods? 
I have only my arms and my probity. That does not reassure us. We must act with prudence and severity. We cannot lend to you gratis. Well then, lend to us, to my companions and myself, at rates of 4, 5, or 6%. This will be an insurance premium whose product will cover your risks. What are you thinking of? Our law is to lend gratis or not lend at all. We are too philanthropic to make anyone pay us for doing nothing. This applies to the poor man no less than to the rich one. That is why the rich man obtains gratuitous credit at our establishment, and why you will have none, whether you pay or not. In other words, when interest rates get too low, things can get weird. Wealthy individuals and established corporations are able to borrow the value of society's capital indirectly from the savings pool for almost free. However, the average person, the entrepreneur, and even more importantly, the hungry young usurper startup is forbidden even a sip from the fire hose of nearly free credit. When savings and capital are artificially priced at a time value of 0%, we pull forward the abundance of the future to subsidize borrowers in the present. The result is that today's people pay nothing to borrow the money of the future people. This is because the price of capital is its opportunity cost. By giving up your capital, you surrender any economic gains you may have yielded from that capital. Interest is what must be paid to you in exchange for your withholding of your consumption until a future date. Historical Failures of Artificially Low Interest Rates Alright, let's stop right there today, um, and we will hit part two. We're a little over halfway. Uh, I want to hit a short guy's take, and then we'll hit part two tomorrow. But right now, let's hit our sponsor. CoinKite is the maker of the coldest storage device in the world, the cold card Mark IV hardware wallet. You know... You need to keep your Bitcoin safe, but you're procrastinating because you think it's hard or it's not easy to use, or maybe you're just unfamiliar with it. You're leaving it on an exchange. I know there are some of you out there. Well, that is going to get you burned. Not your keys, not your coins isn't something we just say for fun. We say it because we have lost precious Bitcoin, or we know someone who has. Way too much of it, in fact to corrupt exchanges, to irresponsible managers, to bad code, and controlling governments because someone else was holding our keys. Luckily, it isn't even hard to protect yourself. All you need is a cold card. And you can even do a simple multi-sig with your smartphone and a tap signer. That is a huge defensive barrier against hackers, against uh, you know custodians, anything like that. If you are holding your own keys and you have a solid backup of that, anything to get your Bitcoin behind your keys and away from third parties, you are going to be way ahead of the game. The cold card hardware wallet is one of the longest running hardware wallets in the Bitcoin space, and it is literally beloved by the Bitcoin community. They are high, incredibly high reputation, and they have been around since 2011. And it's truly, really versatile in the different ways that you can use it. You can use it just by plugging it directly into your phone. You can use it by an NFC so that you can just tap on your phone or you can tap with your tap signer. You know, it's called a tap signer. Who knew? But you can even use the cold card air gapped. In fact, that's what it is by default. 
for an additional layer of security that you're never even directly communicating or directly plugged in to a device that is on the internet. It's an awesome device, it's not hard to use, and it is going to be a thousand x improvement in your security and the assurance that you have your Bitcoin and nobody else can take it from you. And you can get 5% off with code BitcoinAudible if you go to guyswan.com slash coldcard. That link will take you directly there. The discount code is right there in the show notes, conveniently right next to the link. So own your Bitcoin, secure your keys, and get a cold card. All right, let's jump back in. All right, so... um. This piece is really dense if you've never heard a lot of these ideas before. Um, there is a lot that he is unpacking just to get through, essentially the, get the foundation laid to understand the degree and expanse of capital misallocation that has occurred in the current setup of the financial system and how money works. And it's shocking how ignorant most people are of this. Um, and, and I think it's largely just, you know, I don't, it's, it's easy to forget when you've kind of been down the rabbit hole for so long. And in fact, I kind of discovered a lot of these monetary and financial principles before I found Bitcoin. And Bitcoin was just kind of like this shining light, like, holy crap, this is actually solvable by taking this thing out of the hands of government. But, you know, m my brother and I found Austrian economics prior to Bitcoin. Um, in fact, it's largely what led us, he uh, led us there. But to think about it, like I... We, we found these things on our own. Like nobody taught, like the ideas weren't even suggested through like our entire schooling and higher education. There was no basic understanding of how money and the economy works. In fact, if you really think about it, school has almost no foundation for how anything works. Like imagine how grossly unprepared you are for the world when... You're not like, why, why is school not at least like 50% just teaching you how shit works, like teaching you how a TV works, how a manufacturing process works, how business works, how the economy works, how money works, how trees and paper and like just every single thing. How is it just not a series of things in our society and how the functioning of our society operates so that when you're a part of it, you can actually be a part of it. You can actually be a meaningful piece of the puzzle. How is that all stuff that we learn after? And we learn this giant, this, this seemingly giant series of disparate, isolated facts. I feel like looking back on it, school was just memorizing things out of context. It's like, it's not why you would want to know these things or why you would understand, understand these things. It was... It, it's like this giant list of memorization. And obviously there are pockets, there's isol like there's pockets of, you know, good teachers and, and, you know, good processes. It's not as if the entire, just like the economy or just like money, it's not as if the entire thing is a complete failure. It's the incentives are pushing allocation towards the wrong thing, towards ever greater amounts, towards just kind of chasing the numbers, getting the quantifiable results that the state testers and standardized whatevers want to get. 
It's hard to quantify skill. It's hard to quantify an explanation. It's hard to quantify the understanding and application of a process. It's really easy to quantify true-false questions. It's really easy to quantify, list out, out of these four things, which one is the one that I told you to remember. But that has nothing to do with the world. That has nothing to do with how anything works. That is not... I mean, what, what possibly about being a good tester prepares you for dealing with the chaos and the unknowable everything and risks of the world? How does it allow you to judge things? How does it, how does it allow you, give you critical thinking skills in order to assess a situation and understand how many different complexities went into that situation that you may not that you may actually be able to apply, that you may actually be able to understand. If you understand, you know, why this thing on the left is overpriced or um, why it appears that this is a better deal, but you know it's actually not because of two steps down the line. If you're just, if you're not aware of the bigger picture, even in a vague sense, how could you possibly make intelligent decisions? How, like... How do you not just constantly run into roadblocks into what's happening in the world and get blindsided by these chaotic, you know, housing market booms and busts and all of this stuff? I don't know. I just, it's crazy to me that like none of that is a part of the system. And, and especially when this is fascinating. And it's largely that quantifiable, the lack of quantification where, uh, or quantifiability, quantification, is that even a word? Uh, quantifiability with the state, where the state needs to have a number, it needs to have something that it can judge, you know, like they need to have a stat on how something has improved, and it's really easy to just dumb down what you're teaching and how you're teaching. It's much easier to do that than figure out how to make a subjective judgment call or assessment of knowledge itself because knowledge isn't quantifiable it's it's you know naturally a difficult thing to understand or not not understand but to to measure you know you can't put a number on knowledge and that's why steven in this piece has to go into so much of this foundation and it's fascinating it's fascinating stuff to actually learn how the economy works and memorize some stupid model and like just idiotic keynesian economic theory like some of the things that i learned in uh college economics was so like the supply and demand curve was fascinating because it's it was intuitive to me um but there's so many things that are that lose the deductive fascination of the economy that lose this nature you know actually steven starts off earlier on in this uh, uh, early in this piece says you know, to understand how this happens, we will first discuss how the economy functions as an emergent machine that produces spontaneous order, and we will then discuss how money is a carrier of the condensed information that is necessary for this spontaneous order to arise. So, back to my... the That was a quote from earlier on in the piece, and back to my comment about how Knowledge is not quantifiable, that you can't put a number on it. This is the same thing, this is very similar to how price works. Because knowledge, knowledge is a value. And the price is a value. It's an attempt to quantify a value. But because value is subjective, 
it can only be done in relation. It can only be done in comparison to another thing. And this is why we think of prices as being more accurate or, or being more reflective of the reality of the market with more liquidity. You know, when you talk about like Bitcoin or a shitcoin or something that has like no liquidity on the market and the price is swinging wildly, you want to know why that is? It's because there are not enough relative value comparisons in order to even out the price. There's such a, there's such a huge separation between the rug pullers and the speculators and anybody who has even the slightest clue what this thing is. And there's so few people making the direct person to person, you know, buyer to seller weight of the economic value of this thing that it just swings wildly. And because it's relative, the, the ultimate price, the end price is the accumulation of all the relative valuations. So when, like, let's use a simple example. Like if somebody is willing to pay $20,000 for a car, they are weighing independently their worth, all the other things that they could get for $20,000 with the car and what that car provides for them and what they intend to use it for. The fact that they want to take their family on vacations. They want to reliably get to and from work. They want to safely get their family to and from all of their destinations and to travel and see their family, uh, you know, see their parents and their grandparents and their cousins and friends, all of these things. This is a very important consideration and it has long-term consequences. And that one weight, the weight of them knowing how they got that $20,000, they, they are the only ones who truly understand the cost from their, from their perspective, from their knowledge, from their skills, from the work that they have done, what that $20,000 is worth. And they put it on the car. But is that the price of the car? Well, it's the price according to one relative comparison. One person's accumulated knowledge, choices, direction in life, skills, their family, their needs. You know, if somebody doesn't have a, a lot of family and somebody doesn't do a lot of traveling or go visit family and friends, they just want to have fun, maybe they'll get a totally different car. Let's get an off-roading Jeep or something, just something to have fun, to explore in. They don't really care if it's reliable because it's all just a, it's all just a fun project anyway. But when you have those additional people, when you have someone else who has 20000 or 17000 or $24,000 to, to make that comparison, to make that weighted choice for their life, their situation, and their subjective, the, the subjective value they will receive from the product, then you start to have this market of bidding where essentially there is no reason for the person who has the car to accept less value than it's worth than somebody else is willing to voluntarily exchange for it. And so that bidding war ensues. You have, and, and you, the more and more uh, participants and competition that you get in the market, the, the truer the essential price is. And you also have more people bring in new cars to the market and people who were valuing their car at X amount and then the price in the market you know, grew higher than that. Maybe they didn't need an extra car. You know, maybe they didn't need a car at all. Maybe they live in the city and they, should just, they could just take cabs or walk to most of their destinations. It makes sense suddenly in that subjective instance to make a completely different decision. 
but it is all judged by the price. And the more of these interactions and the more of the weight of every single person's judgments, of every individual's skills and their path in life and their decisions to have a family or not, or to, to invest in something or you know spend it frivolously and just have fun and live in the moment, all of these things begin to pile into the price. And the price it fluctuates up and down with all of its participants' subjective values until the, the final, the final, I say the final, but there's no such thing as the conclusion. There's no end game. There's only any, at any single moment, is the last price. It's the latest valuation from all of the collective value that went into it and their cost and their trade-offs and everything. And this is why he makes a remark a little bit later on in the piece, which I thought was really cool. And I've used this analogy before on the show. I don't know how long ago now probably 400 episodes ago, but the price is a one-way function. It's a hash function of value. All of the value choices and voluntary trade-offs uh, that went into all of the ongoing millions, billions of trades associated and around the trade of this good, all of it went into, all of it mattered in the creation of the price but nothing in the price can unravel all of that information, just like a hash of a book or you know the Gutenberg Bible. If you hash that all into one thing and then spit it out, the hash might tell you, uh, might be able to prove that it was that block or it was that uh, group of information, of pages, of data, of uh, you know writing. But you cannot take the hash and return all of that information. But it was deterministic. It had to be there in order to produce the hash. But all of this, all of this is dependent on the money being an independent, scarce mechanism to trade against all of the various supply shifts and valuations and everything of goods in the market. It is explicitly because, this is why money emerges. We talked about this very recently on the show is that the reason money emerges in society is because, and certain goods emerge as better money, is because it serves as the static foundation, the, the static measuring stick to, to weigh everything else against. It's the unmoving lighthouse. It's the one thing that you know its supply doesn't change. Therefore, when anything else fluctuates against it, you're not measuring the change in the amount of Bitcoin. You're measuring the change in the subjective valuation of everything in comparison to Bitcoin. And the supply hasn't changed. The issuance hasn't changed. That is what makes it useful to compare cars and bananas, which are axiomatically, like just by their base production processes and ingredients and how they are made and what they are made for, everything about those two things could not be further apart from each other. They have nothing to do with each other in a million different ways. And you obviously don't have a market of trading bananas and, uh, and cars. There's no like stock market derivative that says like, oh, I'm willing to trade 51,742 bananas for a car. And then there's bids and ass prices going crazy. It's like 52,000 bananas. You know, it's, you can't compare these two things. And the idea of having a liquid market between every good and every other good on the, 
in the economy is absurd. It's ridiculous. That's why we use a common totem, because it would be so grossly inefficient to have to do this with millions of goods on the market and have these market exchanges between socks and uh, shirts, for crying out loud, like just like anything and everything. It would be such an absurd scenario or idea and that's actually kind of like the shitcoin logic is that we're going to have every utility is going to have its own token and we're going to be trading against all these things so we'll know what all the tokens uh, all the individual utilities are worth by measuring the value of their token no that's the whole point of not having barter in the first place is you measure them against the same token you measure them against the same money the most secure the most independent the most neutral money that gives you the most reliable picture of what is happening in the world, of what the value of things really are, what the weight of the trade-offs made to acquire it truly is according to all of the people who had to pay for the weight of it. That is the reason money works. Without it, it doesn't do its job. It becomes completely useless. The it's it's the it's the blood flow it's the it's the oxygen level in the blood of the economic organism if you don't know where your body needs oxygen and where your muscles are using it or you know have too much or being given too much and you don't know how to redirect that throughout your body if your mechanism for judging which is too high and too low breaks or is no longer giving you proper measurements your body's going to fall apart you're, you're going to try to pick something up and your muscle's not going to work because it doesn't have any oxygen to run on. This is the same with money in the economic system. It is a universal measure and allocator. And every single time we have made the confusion between money and capital, we have decided that you can print money. It just, I just still argue it constantly. I see it all the time. And I argue with people, with people on Twitter who think this, who literally think that you can make tokens that come out of nowhere, write, you know, print some ink on a napkin, and it makes you wealthier. It's like, well, what are you going to do with that? Well, you're going to buy stuff. So the stuff was the only thing there in the begin to begin with. How did, how did what you just, what did you just do, and how did it make more stuff? It did not. It did not do anything all they ever have to do and you can't say it's like oh it's a second order third order effect no you've just taken the resources from somewhere else you have misallocated them to someone who have no who has no economic weight because they didn't achieve their money through the voluntary exchange of some other resource and time and trade-off that they made and thus they can then weigh that against the next trade that they made they just invented it they poofed out of thin air they made they they wrote ink on a napkin that said, I am rich and now I am owed these resources and other people were tricked into thinking that it was worth the resources that they're giving up and so they give it to them. The information of value going into that transaction is a lie. It is counterfeit. It is a fraud. There's a really great quote in this one. This, this one, I loved this because I think this is such a good example. Uh, just a, just a fun analogy on how to think about it. It says, quote, Money is a reflection, a mirror twin of capital itself, and it is a critical part of the emergent process via which capital happens. 
money contains the potential to direct economic outcomes and produce returns. It is a literal claim to society's time and resources. It is the symbolic coordinator of capital, as well as an instrument that stores its unredeemed and future capacity for utilization. Now that is a lot of a sentence, or two sentences, but it's really, really good. So, money is a reflection, a mirror twin of capital itself, and a critical part of the emergent process via which capital happens. So the reason, when, when everybody is using it as a mirror, it's using it as its weighting mechanism. The more people who use it as the weight mechanism, as the, the other half of every trade that they do, the more accurate the aggregate, the, the cumulative assessment of what it is worth becomes. But all it is doing is demonstrating, it's, it's accumulating information about all of the capital that's available in society by being the other half of that transaction. So the more and more prices, because you think about it, every price of every good is accounting for you know, the second, third, and fourth, and fifth, and sixth iterations and interactions with every other good in the economy because every other good is also trading against that money. Or the value, the, the value of those factors of production are also trading against the money. Like at some point, everything is literally connected to everything else. The entire thing is a circle. It's very much a chicken or egg problem because there is no... There is no start or conclusion to the price. Every, every price has every price behind it as, as a potential weight for the current one, and it affects every price that comes after it. It is a literal claim to society's time and resources. It is how we allocate who has done what. You know, I got asked at the Hodoween conference um, after Jeffrey and I after my brother and I did the talk, um, uh, somebody said, somebody brought up Michael Saylor and said, but, you know, Michael Saylor has all this Bitcoin and stuff. Like, let's say, let's say Bitcoin is a fairer system. You know, the rules are consistent. Well, how do we fix when somebody has a ton of Bitcoin? How do we fix, how do we undo the inequality that Michael Saylor has all of this, has all of these coins and Nobody else will have as many as they do. And I immediately said, well, that's not, you know, that's not the point. The point isn't to remove natural inequality. The point is to remove unearned inequality. If the, if the quote-unquote inequality is purely through actual weight of value, through the actual decisions of participants in the economy, if someone ends up accumulating more, like think of... I use the example of, let's say everybody in that room at the time were, was the entire economy. And, you know, a lot of people just, you know, work five hours a day. Let's say, let's say everybody, let's say everybody was working just five hours a day and they were just kind of like getting by and enjoying their life and, you know, spending time with their family. And, you know, they worked hard when they wanted to work, but um, they just, they just did what they needed to to survive. And if they had a lot of extra capital, they would, um, you know, go on vacation or eat a little bit more or eat fancier food instead of just, you know, basic stuff. Or, you know, maybe they take more leisure time. Maybe they take a couple of days off. 
But then there's one person in that economy who just viciously loves to build. They just, they just build stuff. And they build 100 houses working 15, 16-hour days for just years and years. And they thus end up, and they don't spend it. They don't have any leisure. They, they don't, they don't, what, like that is their fun thing to do is the, the, the risk and the, the frustration and the grueling work of producing a house, of building a house with his hands. Like he loves, this is what this person loves to do. Well, they should have a hundred houses worth of capital. If they make that much more value into the economy and they've produced this work, then they should have all of that money. The thing is, is if they just consume a hundred houses and they've printed the money out of thin air, then they've stolen it from the five hours of work that everyone else is doing. That is unearned. That is fraudulent. That is a cheat. But the person who actually builds houses, who actually runs a business, who actually loves to produce and, you know, take on that risk and uncertainty in the markets and fight the fight of entrepreneurship, that person deserves whatever the hell they can voluntarily get from other people. And think about how ridiculous it is to take something from someone that they achieved voluntarily. Like, you're... You're saying that the involuntary transaction of you stealing it from them while you weren't even involved in the transaction is better than the two voluntary people who were involved in directly saying that this is worth it to me. In what way is any sort of theft for any excuse better than the voluntary transaction? We would want less involuntary transactions in society, would we not? And in the context of the person building the house, it's actually, it's actually better for everyone else. It makes everyone else wealthier if they get the money that they were allocated. You want to know why? Because what are they going to do with all that money? They're not going to take 10 days off. They're not going to buy a sports car. They're going to build 100 more houses. The reason they get the money from the trade that they, from all of the trade they engaged in and all the productivity they created is because they're making houses for everyone. It's great to have houses. And every individual person who bought one said, this is worth more to me than the money that I am exchanging for it. So by what right do we say, oh, well, I still think it's worth it. I still think I want to keep the house. I just want my refund. I just want, I just want the money back because you took too much of it. You, you made too many houses. You want your time and resources back, but you don't want to lose the thing that you traded them for. We don't need to fix inequality that is natural, that is based on actual productivity and voluntary trade. We need to fix inequality that is because of cheating, that is because of corruption, that is because of manipulation of the price that is not actual market prices on the economy. It is through the printing of money and the man artificial manipulation of interest rates. Just like we don't need to take points from the person who's good at football and give it to the person who's bad at football, you give points to the team and the players that make touchdowns and score goals. Period. If it didn't work that way, no one would play the game. And considering the game of the economy is producing enough food, water, and shelter for everyone to live and prosper, 
the last thing you want is for people to stop playing the game or to cheat because it means you have less food, water, and shelter and you have more people fraudulently claiming the food, water, and shelter that we have left. Man, there's about a million other things to go through. I really wanted to get into the boom and bust story because it's something that I haven't covered in a really, really long time. Um, and this one would be a really good one to make like a short video on to uh, try to make it shareable, you know, try to make, make it easy to understand. And Stephen does a really good job in this of kind of like showing the misallocation. There's one thing actually that I did disagree with. I hate, I hate it when people um, soften their words <laughs> uh, in order to, you know, not sound so aggressively, yes, maybe not sound so biased or whatever. I don't know. It's hard to say. Um, but uh, Stephen is a very diplomatic writer, I would say. He says, there's, there's this quote. It says, however, if interest rates are artificially lowered, we run the risk of fundamentally distorting the pricing of capital and altering the behaviors of savers and investors. I would just change this by saying, I mean, he's absolutely right. Except that I think we have fundamentally distorted the pricing of capital and the behaviors of savers and investors. Like that is what artificially lowering the interest rate is. So it's not that it's at risk of happening. It's that the very act of that is doing exactly what you said might occur. Otherwise, we are suggesting that money is not a capital allocator and that prices are not a... Uh, Prices do not affect our decisions, which is essentially like saying that, you know, if you go to a car dealership and they say, here is a Mercedes for $100, or here is the exact same Mercedes in a slightly different color for $50,000, that the price is not going, that that's not going to affect your decision, that one is $49,900 difference. Now, obviously, that's an extreme example, but extremes prove the point. Price is everything. Price is every economic decision that we make because it's how we know how many hours and how much labor and how long it will take us, how much in other resources and other goods and other trade-offs and other hard, long nights of work and uh, not going on vacations and not having things that I want and not getting a nice fancy meal but eating a basic thing. How many of those does it cost to acquire this thing? To say that money or prices, uh, to say that prices don't affect our behaviors or might not affect our behaviors is saying that the economy is not about economizing. I know, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying that Stephen said this at all. He did not. In fact, he argued exactly the point I was just making. I just thought it was kind of funny that he said... It might happen. And I'm like, no, that it, it already happened. But one thing, one thing I really, really liked, we'll close, we'll close this out in just a second. Um, uh, in fact, actually, before I hit this point, I just want to go ahead and thank CoinKite and the cold card and the hardware wallets and a lot I've gotten my little Christmas of cold card or my Christmas of CoinKite things in. I got my block clock. I don't have it set up. I don't have it set up yet. It's like everything is just still in their boxes and I'm super excited to dig into it, but I really want time and I want to be able to get out my camera and film a little bit of it. Um, maybe make a video. We'll see. Um, but a thank you to CoinKite for sponsoring the show and uh, for also having just awesome Bitcoin hardware for ever in Bitcoin. 
um, and to Swan Bitcoin for Swan Bitcoin hosts this article. This is another great Stephen Lovka's amazing writer. So many great pieces, and this is why I recommend Swan Bitcoin as a huge, valuable resource for knowledge, for just understanding about Bitcoin, and of course, buying Bitcoin and Pacific Bitcoin Conference, all of those great things. Links in the show notes, and then lastly, the full card. I had to pay some government car registration and tax things today and i tell you what that hurts and it makes me very very unhappy when i get to spin and get like you know two percent sats back it it is it really does soften the blow it really makes it really just puts a little bit of a quirk a little little smile at the end of terrible things that i despise and of course they support the show which i you know that's great too but the last point that I wanted to make for closing this out is talking about because usury the claim that renting out money is wrong um I think Stephen hit this really well that if you rent out and this is an, this is actually an analogy I've used in the past as well but again long time ago I don't I have no idea where um but that if I rent you my car and you know, I do it at $100 a day or $20 a day or whatever it is, then I would rent you money exactly the same. Because if I give you the money for free, well, then you can get the car for free. And now you're renting the car without ever having to pay a rental price. Basically, if you didn't have to rent money, if there was no interest rate, well, then you would never have there would be no market for renting anything because everyone would just borrow the money for free and buy the thing they would just they would just take it because like he said that's all money is it's a mirror image of society and its resources it's um it is the literal claim to society's time and resources it's just agnostic as to what resource you choose to use you know, if I rent you a car, you, the only thing you get to use is the car. But if I loan you money, you can do anything at all with it. Every single thing in the economy is exchangeable for money. So you're not renting one specific resource at one specific price or the, the you know, specific trade-off or general time that you might use one good or product. You know, there might be something that you specifically rent by the month and then something else that you rent by the hour or the day. So you don't need that often. Um, like, you know, leasing a car or, you know, renting a tool. But when you rent money, when you simply borrow money, it means that you can just go rent or own or have any resource at all in the economy. You're free to do whatever you want, and your job is then to economize or find the highest value use for that money or your most subjective highest value use for your person and your family and your situation such that it's worth the price of consuming it now when you're going to work for it later, when you're going to produce the same amount plus the cost of the time in which you consumed resources that you had never made. You know, if you eat a sandwich before you make a sandwich, you're taking somebody else's sandwich, and you should be paying them a premium to eat their sandwich for them. Because they went without a meal for a reason. But if there's any idea, any idea that desperately needs to stick in your head and never ever go anywhere, is that money is not the resource itself. 
It's the thing that allocates resources. It is the mirror image of all of the resources and all of the time that society has to devote to productive activities. But in understanding that is actually why you understand that money can be purely digital. Why fiat money works until it's abused. And how money is actually a promise to the integrity of its relationship with everything else in the economy. How certain are you that there is exactly 21 million and there will never be any more Bitcoin? Because that is its worth as a monetary good. But we will get into... Uh, he has some really good examples and kind of to illustrate the ideas that he lays out in the capital misallocations and why interest rates manipulate things. And it'll probably be better to hit the boom bust story again to to make that easy to understand. Maybe at the end of the next episode, if I have time or potentially in a guy's take covering some of these ideas afterward. So we will do that. Do not forget to subscribe. This way you will not miss any more episodes of the wonderful Bitcoin Audible. I'm going to try to get out as many episodes as I can. Uh, hopefully five this week. I'll, I'll set my goal lofty and we'll see what happens. Let the chips fall where they may. I'll keep working. I'll keep reading. I'll be here at Bitcoin Audible and I will catch you on the next episode. And until then, everybody, take it easy, guys. Quantity of money available in the whole economy is always sufficient to secure for everybody all that money does and can do. Ludwig von Mises, Human Action. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.